Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, we remember how the Lord Jesus began the sermon by describing for us the character, the radical character of kingdom citizenship as he described it in those Beatitudes in the beginning of chapter 5. Those who are in the kingdom are poor in spirit. They mourn. They they are meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are merciful. They are pure in heart. Their whole heart is focused only on God. They are peacemakers. And because of all of this, they are persecuted. They are reviled because they stick out. They don't belong in the world the way it is. And that becomes obvious. It's like when you ingest something toxic, something poisonous. What does your body try to do? The gag reflex. Your body tries to expel that poison, that toxin, to throw it up again because it's deathly to you. So you viscerally react to something which is going to kill you. And that's what the world does to the church. When the church is the church, when the church is light, when the church is salt, the world reacts to expel, to destroy, because the world understands that between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, only one of them will stand and the other will be destroyed. And so until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are locked in a cosmic battle And only one party will be the victor. The other will be destroyed. The world intends for us to be destroyed, and God intends for the world of sin to be destroyed. So that's the background to our text. And the Lord Jesus reminded us that if we are living in the world in such a way that we don't really make a difference, we don't really stick out, and the world doesn't really react violently against us at all, then we need to wonder whether we are even in the kingdom. Then the Lord Jesus assured his listeners that he was not here to destroy the law. The Pharisees had been teaching the people that it's what you do that gets you into the kingdom. If you follow this and you follow that and this rule and that rule, this regulation, that regulation, Check off this box and check off the other box, a system so detailed, so complex that only they could do it. And they despise the common people in the church, this crowd that does not know the law, are cursed. And Jesus comes and says, look, I say it's not what you do in the first place, it's who you are. Now you may think, well, That's putting the law in danger. And the Lord Jesus said, no, it's not putting the law in danger because I come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. I come to preach a righteousness which far exceeds the fake righteousness of the Pharisees. Because being a kingdom citizen means that you are something in the first place and your being results in a different way of living. It results, it looks like, a life of perfectly keeping the law from the heart. Not a legalistic 
case law that details rules to, to paint you with external whitewash, the external whitewash of, of fake righteousness, but a way of radical living flowing from a radically changed heart, which fills you with a radical and real righteousness with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The, the, the comparison between what the Pharisees are trying to do and what Jesus is preaching is this, that the Pharisees take our old man, that body of sin, that dead sinner, and they spend an inordinate amount of time with makeup and animatronics and ropes and pull, uh, pull, block and tackles, and, and they make that dead thing look as if it were alive and move as if it were alive, but it's still dead. And Jesus says, no, I come to actually turn dead sinners into living children of the living God. The difference between the two systems is the difference between light and darkness, night and day. And now, as we go on into the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus gives examples of what that difference looks like. He takes certain aspects of the Pharisees' teaching about the law. Their teaching is not built on the, the rock of God's truth in Christ. It is built on the sands of human imagination, human opinion, and the lies that humans tell ourselves. And Christ demolishes this system. He demolishes the system of works righteousness. And great is the fall of it. And he brings us the gospel of the overflowing righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we come to the preaching of Christ about the various aspects of the law, we ought to expect the gospel. And often, as Christians, we don't. We come to the Sermon on the Mount, and we look at what Jesus says about anger and about murder and about adultery and all these things, and we expect casuistry. We, ex we, we look and we say, well, okay, so I'm not allowed to call my brother a, a fool, but what if I call him an idiot? Does that count? What, what can I get away with? What are the lines here? And we often approach the Sermon on the Mount desiring to reconstruct a similar structure as the Pharisees had. But that is not at all the point of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to the text of this morning, we ought not to expect an exposition about anger. And what about righteous anger? Can I have righteous anger? And didn't the Lord Jesus get angry? And when can I get away with being angry that it's not a sin? That's not what the text is about. The Lord Jesus is showing us again this morning the radical new life that he gives to the citizens of the kingdom. That's the main point. And so verse 21, if you have your Bible open, it will help you to follow the sermon. You have heard that it was said to those of old, and then he quotes the commandment we heard it this morning, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The little bit that he adds there, that is added by those of old, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's right in the Old Testament that if someone murders, they have to be brought before the local judges. So this is scriptural teaching, which was communicated to 
the people by the Pharisees. Now, some people think, well, what Jesus is doing is this, that Moses and the law was kind of superficial, and then Jesus comes in the New Testament, and he, and he gives it a new and a deeper meaning. No, that's not what the Lord Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing is he's clearing away all the mess of the infrastructure that the Pharisees have built on top of the law of God. He's clearing it away and showing the pureness of the truth of God's law, which has always been that way. So what he's targeting, he's not targeting Moses. He's targeting the scribes who teach and the Pharisees who practice a human system of law. It's much like the time of the, the Great Reformation when, when the clergy were giving a mixture of a few drops of gospel along with massive doses of what they thought, of what the church thought, of the tradition, human tradition. And so there was, in the time of the Reformation and also back here in the time of Jesus, a tiny little bit of thus says the Lord, and then lots and lots of this is what I think, this is what the Pope thinks, this is what the Pharisees think, this is what the scribes think. And Jesus burns it all away. He burns away all the human dross, and he brings us back to the silver seven times refined of God's holy law, which is beautiful, and which is good, and which is true, and which stands forever, and not a iota, not the tiniest part of it, not the tiniest stroke on the tiniest letter of it, will pass away until the end of time. And so, this is what's in front of us. What was their teaching about the sixth commandment? You shall not murder whoever murders will be liable to judgment. It's true. As I said, this is drawn from the Old Testament. So the problem is not what they're saying. The problem is what they're not saying. You see, the Pharisees reduced the sixth commandment to a civil matter. If you kill someone, if you murder someone, you're going to be brought up before the judge. And you're going to die because the penalty for homicide is death. And so their teaching reduced the sixth commandment to a civil offense with a civil penalty. And Jesus is basically saying, that's it? That's all you've got? What about God? What about the heart? What about David in Psalm 51 when he had committed adultery, he had murdered a man, and then he says, God, against you, and against you only have I sinned. That's in the Old Testament, Pharisees. Have you not taken that into account? And in that same Psalm 51, David cries out to the Lord. He says, Lord, the problem is not that doing bad things has made me a sinner. The problem is that being a sinner causes me to do bad things, and I need to have a new nature, creating me a new heart, oh my God, to renew a right spirit within me. These are all clear teachings of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, which the Pharisees blithely ignored. If you murder someone, you're going to go to the judges, and you're going to get executed. And for most people, they're like, well, that's good, because that's not me. Let's, let's go to the next law now, because this one has really nothing to do with me. 
what Jesus sets before the Pharisees and before the church, and you see that in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, he says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. The problem is the problem of the heart. Brothers and sisters, how often are we not imitating the Pharisees? How often are we not looking at our sins and saying, well, I didn't do that. I, you know, I, I, I sometimes get angry and I spent a whole day without losing my temper. So I'm, I think I'm getting better. I'm becoming a better Christian. And we look at things so superficially. Someone who is addicted to pornography and, and, and lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and, 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 and manages to go for, for two days without looking. And they think, yes, I'm growing sanctification. No, you're not. Because your problem is not how many times you look. The problem is that you want to look. The problem is not how many times you drink and get drunk. The problem is that you want to get drunk. The problem is the heart. And we ought to long not for external, superficial, so-called righteousness. We ought to long for true transformation of the heart. And so the Lord Jesus says, well, you've heard that it was taught this way. But, verse 22, I say to you, I say. You know, the Old Testament prophets and the apostles in the New Testament, they say, thus says the Lord. This is what God says. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He says, I say, because he's God. He's the only human being that can teach authoritatively saying, I say this. If you ever hear anybody but Jesus say, I'm telling you this, don't listen to them. Only he has that authority. This is the true meaning of the law, says Jesus. I know because it's my law. I'm the one who gave it at Mount Sinai. This is the truth which stands to the end of time. This is the law that I have come to keep and to fulfill in every detail. This is what it means. That everyone who is even just angry with his brother, Everyone who insults, and, and that word insults, is he uses an Aramaic word there in, in verse 22. The word is raka. Everybody says raka, which means empty head. Everyone that says, you fool, is guilty of murder, of sin against the sixth commandment. Now, raka, as I said, is Aramaic, empty head. Fool is Greek. You see, the people that were listening to Jesus' sermon here, they, they had Aramaic as the day-to-day -day language. They had Greek as kind of the worldwide language of the Roman Empire. And many of them understood at least some of it. And so they could curse and swear in multiple languages. They could say raka. They could say moron, which is the other word. That's the Greek word, our word moron. Basically the same thing. And moron in the Greek kind of means slow-minded, but it's a similar thing. What is, what is the Lord Jesus getting at here? 
Well, we need to understand a little bit of how the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the different religious groups would argue back then. They argued and they fought about interpretations of the law. And when you got it wrong, they would say, you are making the law empty. You are not fulfilling the law. Your interpretation is wrong. And your, your wrong interpretation empties the law and is the opposite of fulfilling the law. Now, if you have your Bible handy, Deuteronomy 32, 46. Deuteronomy 32, 46. Because this, this is what they were kind of basing it on. 32, 46, and 47. Moses says, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Then Deuteronomy 32, verse 47, for it is no empty word. That word empty is connected to the insult in our text. It's connected to that word group of raka or reka. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. So, those who did not keep all the rules of my religious group, the scribes and Pharisees or the Sadducees or the, or the Essenes or whichever group there was, they are not fulfilling Torah, but they are making it an empty word. And so they are empty heads. They are raka. They are fools. They have an empty head with empty words. They are emptying the law of its meaning. And so when they argued and fought about things, the things of God, when they called each other raka and moron, they were saying, you are outside. Now, the word fool here is not exactly the same word as we have in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a different word. But it's the same idea. You aren't keeping God's law. You are outside of the kingdom. And that's how we see that in John chapter 9, verse 16. You remember the man who was born blind, and the Lord Jesus healed him, and then that man had some interaction with the authorities of the synagogue. And they say there in John chapter 9, they say about Jesus, this man, Jesus, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. What are they saying? Well, we have a bunch of check boxes. We have a bunch of rules and regulations. He's not checking them off, so he's outside. He's excluded. He's a raka. He's a fool. He's outside of the kingdom. And in fact, they didn't just apply that to him, but if you read John chapter 9, they had also said that anybody that accepts Jesus' teaching and follows him is excommunicated by that fact from the synagogue. And so they could be vicious in their insults, but not just with their words, because their words, their vicious words could translate to violence. And you see that when the Lord Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the supreme court of Israel at that time. And you remember in, on the night in which he was before the Sanhedrin, before his crucifixion, that they spat in his face and they struck him. Because he was not a keeper of the law. Can you add? The lawgiver was there. And they said, well, you know, you're not following all the rules and regulations that we have created, so you are outside of the scope of the kingdom of heaven. 
And so they excommunicated the king of kings from the kingdom of heaven. They spat in his face and they struck him and they sentenced him to death because they disagreed with him about how the law was to be fulfilled. And Jesus in our text is saying, well, you guys have it wrong. And I should know. You get angry when someone doesn't align with your particular set of rules. You excommunicate them in your heart. You fear them and you want to destroy them. They don't belong because they have the wrong opinions. And Jesus says, that is murder. And then he kind of satirizes. He kind of plays their game. He, he, he puts his words in the kind of way that the Pharisees and scribes would talk because they would make all these little regulations. If this, then that. If it's this little variation, then that's the penalty. And they, they would make these huge tomes full of rules and Jesus plays along with the way they do it. He says, well, if you're angry, you're liable to judgment. If you insult, if you say raka, you're liable to the Sanhedrin. If you say you fool, moron, you're liable to hell. They're all the same thing because in all of those courts would judge a murderer worthy of death. And in the final one, it's the heavenly court and the penalty is eternal death. And so we sit here on a Sunday morning, nicely dressed and sitting in comfortable pews, and we think, well, 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 look at those Pharisees. Aren't they bad people? But this is not about the Pharisees, brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus is speaking to us from heaven, not so that we can come out of a church saying, well, the Pharisees were very bad people. The Lord Jesus is speaking to us. This is about us. How we despise each other. How we are angry or afraid of people who don't have the right opinions. People who don't check the right boxes. Who might make the church less pure. And we think less of them. And we're afraid of them. And we would rather they weren't here sometimes. And we don't feel love. We're suspicious of their motives and the thoughts behind their words and their acts. And we, we might speak ill of them. We might say, well, your opinion on women's voting, I think that's very unbiblical. I don't even know how you can call yourself reformed. Maybe we attack them with insults and question their status in the congregation of God, well, maybe we just ignore them. Maybe we live in such a way that they might as well not exist because we have no real meaningful fellowship with them because they're in the group in the church which I don't agree with. So why would I want to spend time with people like that? You know what this is, brothers and sisters? This is the body fighting against itself. But it gets worse. Because when I despise and dismiss and denigrate a brother, I'm not just despising and dismissing and denigrating my brother or my sister, but I despise the Christ who is in him. And if I call, whether by words or by my attitudes, if I call fool or moron, 
if I attack someone in the congregation of God upon whom God has set his love, whom God is transforming from glory to glory after the image of Christ, if I attack someone who is a temple of the living God in whom the Spirit of Almighty God dwells, in whom Jesus Christ is present, if I attack someone in whom dwells the Christ who has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and I call that person insulting names, then I am calling Christ those names. And that is blasphemy. And there is only one penalty for blasphemy. Eternal death. And that's what the Lord Jesus drives home to us in verse 23. That this is a question of eternal life and eternal death. You know, when your body attacks itself, very quickly you can die. Sometimes the immune system is triggered by something and it goes into overdrive and it starts doing its job too well. And it starts attacking not just foreign invaders in your body, but it starts attacking your body and it shuts down your organs and then you die. That can happen when the immune system goes haywire. The body destroys itself. Now, if you have your Bible handy, turn to Psalm 50. We looked at Psalm 50 a few years ago, I think, on Thanksgiving. And just look at the end of Psalm 50. How does God see our worship? If we are biting and devouring and attacking one another, well, look at Psalm 50, verse 16. The Lord has just said, listen, you know, you're coming into my presence. You're following all the rules and bringing all the sacrifices and checking off all the boxes, but I don't like it. It's not good enough because your heart's not in it. That's what I'm looking for. And then he says in verse 16, but to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. And then look there at verse 20. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. God says, here you are coming with all the outward bells and whistles of worship. You're following all the rules. But your heart is full of anger against your own brother. And I've had enough of this. I do not accept it. Look at verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. God will not accept the worship of a body which is tearing itself apart. We sang, we read Psalm 133 before the sermon. And Psalm 133 speaks of the love, the, the, the love of the communion of saints. And says it's like the oil which goes down on Aaron's head and goes down onto the collar of his robes. And that word collar can refer to the top collar or the, the bottom hem in the Hebrew language. So it just, the, the, the anointing goes on the head and goes down onto the body. And that's a picture of the Holy Spirit of God 
poured out from our head, Jesus Christ, onto the entire church, the love of God, which binds us all together and unites us in him. Now, if the priest did not have that anointing, that sacred anointing which put him into the office of high priest, and he walked into the Holy of Holies, he would die. He would be struck down immediately. And so the church, if the church comes into God's presence in worship, and we do not have the anointing oil of brotherly and sisterly love, if we're not bound together in the love of God, but we're hating and being angry and insulting and despising one another, then our worship is not acceptable. God doesn't want it. And that's why the Lord Jesus continues to explain that if there's a problem in the communion of saints, see, most of this text is dealing with the church. The Lord on purpose uses the word brother. Of course, we have to love all people. We have to treat kindly all people. But how can we do that if we can't lo even love each other, if we can't love the children of God? And so that's what he's focusing on here. He says, listen, if you're going to go worship and your brother has something against you, then you've got you to stop with the worship. You've got to go fix things first. The communion of saints is in view because charity, love, begins at home. Jesus said, they shall know you are my disciples not because you won the argument about this or that church political question, as important as it may be, but they shall know you are my disciples by your love. John the Apostle tells us, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And then again, John 1, John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's why Jesus says, stop. What are you doing? You're going to worship. You're going to say, God, I love you. And Jesus says, really? You don't love your brother, you liar. You're deceiving yourself. Go fix your relationship with your brother and then come and tell me how you love me. And so the Lord Jesus warns us in very stark language of being angry, insulting, despising our brother. Why? Because in doing that, we're saying you don't belong. You're not part of the family of God. I don't need to love you. You are worthy only for judgment. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 23, it's kind of surprising, perhaps, what the Lord Jesus says uh, to, the, to the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 17. He says, this is Jesus preaching again. He says, you blind fools. The same word as our text. You blind morons. Wait, didn't the Lord Jesus tell us we weren't supposed to use that word? What's going on? He's talking to people that are in the visible church. These are the leaders of the church. How come he's saying this? 
Well, look at the context. Look at chapter 23, verse 15. 2315, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. A hypocrite is a fake believer, just an outward shell. They're an inside, they're, a, they're a, a tomb of dead man's bones. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So Jesus has excommunicated these leaders. He says, you know who you are children of? Not of God. You are of John 8, 44. You are of your father, the, the devil, who is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. That's who you belong to. Jesus has made that judgment because Jesus can make that judgment because he is God and his is the kingdom and the power and the glory. He gets to call those calls. And so he gets to call them fools because they are, because they are living outside of the kingdom of God. We can't do that to each other because we do not have the authority or the knowledge of people's hearts that Jesus has. Now, as you read our text, you might be a little confused. You think, okay, we can't insult and be angry with a brother. And then all of a sudden, if I'm going to worship and then my brother has something against me, so who's the bad person in this case here? Who is angry with whom? If my brother has something against me, it sounds like he's the one that's angry. Why do I have to do something about it? How does this work? What are the rules? What are the boxes that I have to check off? Who is angry with whom? Who is the sinner? Where do I fit in here? Brothers and sisters, that's the reaction of the Pharisees. That's not the point. The point is not a list of little rules and regulations for how to deal with broken relationships and who has to do the right thing and whose turn is it to make the next move. That's not the point. The point is this, that something is broken in the communion of saints, so fix it. Don't resurrect the foolishness of the Pharisees, but look to Christ the overflowing righteousness, the overflowing love of Christ as he fills the citizens of the kingdom means that we don't just avoid actual killing. We don't just avoid actually insulting and destroying people with our words, but we seek a heart. We want a heart which, which goes after the brother or the sister with whom we have a broken relationship, which seeks them in love, which loves to love them, and which is willing to give up everything, even life itself, for the sake of my brother or sister. As Jesus has laid down his life for the church, says the scripture, so we must lay down our lives for one another. And there's no qualifier there. Jesus doesn't say, well, only for the people that you kind of like not for the people that irritate you in the body of Christ. That's not what he says. For every single brother and sister, I ought to be willing to give up everything. My pride, my time, my convenience, my earthly goods, my very life. And then Jesus finishes the text with uh, instruction on the urgency of dealing with this. Chapter 5, verse 25, come to terms 
quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. There's an urgency here, which Jesus would impress upon us. And the picture is the picture of someone that is in debt, and they owe a lot of money. And the person to whom they owe the money has said, listen, you haven't paid me. I'm going to bring you to court because the court will deal with it. And back in those days, if the court judged you and said, well, you're, you've defaulted on your debt, you, you went to prison until you were finished paying. You had to stay in prison until the debt was paid. No way out except paying the debt. And so Jesus says, look, if, if you have debts with one another, if you have undealt with things that, that need to be dealt with, you need to understand that you are rushing towards judgment. Judgment is coming. And we sing it, we confess it every week as we sing or we confess the creed. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. The judge of all the earth is coming. And every day we're closer, every week we're closer to the great judgment day. And Jesus says, deal with things now because you don't know when the heavens will be ripped open and the trumpet will sound and the voice of command will be heard and judgment will begin with the house of God. And so, brothers and sisters, this text is not a text for the Lord Jesus to tell us about how bad the Pharisees are. But the Holy Spirit asks us this morning to examine our hearts. Am I harboring hate, resentment, anger, bitterness? What debt do I owe? Have I been sinned against? Or do I need to repent and seek restoration and reconciliation? Sorry, let me say that again. Have I sinned against someone? Do I need to repent and restore and, and seek rest, re, reconciliation? Have I been sinned against? Do I owe the offender a Christ-like disposition and willingness to extend biblical forgiveness, to long to see them restored in Christ, to see them repentant and forgiven. And I want to I stop here and, and emphasize what I have emphasized in other sermons, that, that biblical forgiveness is not just saying, well, it, it's okay, forget about it. You hurt me, but Jesus forgives and I forgive you. That's not how it works. Biblical forgiveness is never at the expense of justice. Payment has to be made. And part of real repentance is saying, what can I do to make good what I have broken? If I go out into the parking lot with a hammer and I smash your windshield, and then you come up to me and say, Pastor, really? And I say, oh, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Then God doesn't call you to say, oh, okay, well, you said forgive me, so that's all fine now. I say, well, Pastor, if you're really sorry, do you mind paying for a new windshield? That would be one sign of you being sorry for what you've done. And so... When someone has committed a crime, then true repentance includes willingly seeking the civil penalties applicable to that crime. The forgiveness, the biblical forgiveness, is not just simply sweeping things under the carpet. Come to terms quickly. There's an urgency here. And the, that, that phrase, come to terms, literally in Greek means be well-minded. The, the term raka means empty mind. The term moron means the same kind of thing. 
And Jesus says, don't be calling each other that, but you be well-minded, well-disposed. The word has the idea of being faithful, of having goodwill, affection, being friendly. It is a term used in ancient Greek, secular Greek, for diplomacy, that you, you reach out and you try to find a, a halfway point where we can meet and where we can really uh, covenant together to be friendly to one another. We want to get along. The, the word here, come to terms, can also, in, in the Greek of the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first century, even mean love and affection. So it's not just a, a, a superficial and an external settling of accounts, but it's, I want to restore a relationship here. I want to love you, and I want to be loved. And it reminds us of what the Catechism confesses in its treatment of the Sixth Commandment, that we are called by the Sixth Commandment to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness, to protect our neighbor from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. That's the, the meaning of coming to terms. And so there's this urgency, brothers and sisters, judgment is coming. But right now, we can still go to Jesus. And all the debts can be paid. And all the sins confessed and repented of. Forgiveness can be sought and granted. Relationships can be restored and healed. Right now, that's possible. When Jesus comes, it's too late. The bill is due, and we will never finish paying it ourselves. We're about to sing Psalm 34. If you have your psalm book handy, turn to page 79. We're going to be singing stanzas 7, 8, and 9. The countless misdeeds, the countless evil deeds, will slay the wicked in the end says Psalm 34. All those who hate the righteous ones, he to their doom will send. This is stanza nine we're about to sing. Justice will be served. Those who harbor hate and anger in their hearts against the righteous, against the children of God, will not stand in the judgment. Whether they're out there in the world or whether they're here in the church, they shall not stand in the judgment or in the congregation of the righteousness, of the righteous. Now, as we hear this truth of Scripture, we ought not to be thinking about the other person. Well, yeah, well, I hope that person that hurt me back 20 years ago is, is listening carefully here. This is for me. This is for you. The Lord Jesus has a command to us, and that command is what? I read after the law. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Don't go thinking about the person sitting next to you in the pew. Think about yourself even if you're standing in the pulpit, think about yourself. Is this me? Is this the only debt I have, the debt of love? This is the overflowing righteousness of Christ which fills the citizens of the kingdom that our hearts 
overflow with love and life, and that that changes everything. It restores and heals every relationship. Now, that is a very, very high calling. And we look at it, and we hear it, and we say to God, well, that's not, I, that's not me. I don't do that. I can't do that. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly the point. This is the righteousness of those who know that they do not do it and that they cannot do it. This is the righteousness of those who are poor in spirit, who mourn over sin, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who cry out for the righteousness of God because I have none of my own. And we're about to sing stanza 7 of Psalm 34, when the righteous cry God hears. The righteous cry for help and God in mercy hears their pleas. He graciously delivers them from all their miseries. The Lord is always near. The brokenhearted, he will heal. Those crushed in spirit, he will save. To them, his love reveal. The Lord redeems the life of those who serve and honor him. All who in him their refuge take, he never will condemn. That is the righteousness of the kingdom. That is the gospel. Amen.